Well, if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll use that kind of as our home base this evening. 2 Peter 3, and we'll begin in verse 7. Second Peter 3, easy to find, right after 1 Peter. Second Peter 3, beginning in verse 7. But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. We'll stop right there. Peter here is giving a description of the coming remaking of the heavens and the earth. And he states the position that since the Christians should be looking toward the end times, since you are looking for these things, that there's a response. We're looking for these things. The response to the knowledge that God will draw redemptive history to a close is be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. That our consideration of the end times, our consideration of eschatology, the study of the end, should yield a spiritual result. Well, beginning this evening, we're starting our second mini-series within the larger series of Millennium. And this new little mini-series I'm calling Alternate Views. Alternate Views, rather. Alternate Views. And this is under the heading of Titus chapter 1, which says that elders are to be faithful and qualified to teach what is sound in doctrine, but also to refute that which is erroneous, that which is wrong. And so there is a bit of a challenge with this. For the next several weeks, I'm basically going to be telling you what not to believe. And that's not as uplifting as telling you what you ought to believe, but that's the calling of the elders. It is to also warn you about that which is, uh, that which is out there in the world. And, and it's really on my heart to help you understand how to have conversations with others who maybe differ with us in this particular area because it hasn't always been a friendly conversation and perhaps we can help make it friendlier, but it is a necessary conversation. Alternate views. Why should we even study the end times in the first place? 
I suppose that some engage in the study of the end times for less than profitable reasons. Uh, Maybe an insatiable desire to be right. Somebody who loves to argue. Maybe a self-appointed prophet status. Uh, Those who are just good at debating and they like taking people on, so to speak. And there are many other really not uh, noble reasons. But the best reason for studying the end times is really the sense of expectancy that it cultivates. And the the spiritual fruit that's born because of that, it, it cultivates this expectancy that creates increased worship, it creates increased joy, it creates increased obedience. And we see that even here with Peter saying, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's a result of considering the end. For we who are premillennial in our understanding of Scripture that Christ will return and set up a very real and a very physical kingdom on earth in fulfillment of the many Old Testament and New Testament promises to do so, for over a century now, premillennialists have fended off attacks that go beyond merely intellectual arguments intended to, in a friendly fashion, sway one's theological position. The preeminent Dr. John Walvoord, arguably the most influential premillennialist of the last century, he wrote this, The current trend in millennial literature indicates a mounting attack on premillennialists by those who hold the amillennial position. Just noting, he wrote that in 1959. And it's only gotten worse. Beginning in the 1940s and 50s in particular, some amillennialists were attacking dispensationalism in general and premillennialism in particular. And two major arguments were used repeatedly and they're still used today. I have books on my shelf written less than five years ago that still use these two tired arguments. First, that dispensationalism was invented by John Nelson Darby, the late 19th century Plymouth Brethren preacher and theologian, This is frankly easily disproven and this is a straw man argument. There are no dispensationalists that believe he invented that. That's made up. But the second major argument that continues to be used is that the Schofield Reference Bible, first published in 1909, is evil and that's the reason premillennialism even exists. I have a question for you. How many of you own a Schofield Reference Bible? How many of you, yeah, there's one. How many of you have ever seen a Schofield reference Bible? Okay, it's something mostly in museums at this point, right? Or it's on a shelf somewhere. Amillennialists have attacked Schofield by asserting that dispensationalism leads to heresy in all areas of theology. This is a classic example of an ad hominem argument that since dispensationalists are supposedly extreme radicals, everything we say is suspect. We would never say that about our amillennial brothers. That would be wrong. No one has defended the biblical gospel over the past 500 years like amillennialists. No one. Their ecclesiology, how they do church, is serious and sober and lofty. They take the church of Jesus Christ more seriously, really, than anyone. Let me give an example of the nature of this attack In 1945, covenant theologian Oswald T. Alice, he wrote that basically premillennialists are radical, crazy extremists. He says this, quote, 
And I'm quoting somebody from 1945 because he's still quoted today by those who would be our uh, opponents in this area. He says, quote, carrying to an almost unprecedented extreme that literalism, which is characteristic of millenarianism, premillennial, they, at that time he was speaking of the Brethren Movement, the Plymouth Brethren Movement, they insisted that Israel must mean Israel and that the kingdom promises in the Old Testament concern Israel and are to be fulfilled in Israel literally. He says that makes you an extremist to believe that what the Bible says is what it means. Now, I am not a sharp or distinctive theologian by any stretch of the imagination. I am simply a shepherd of the local church trying to discern what the Word of God says that gives us confidence in His Word and joyful expectation in God's faithfulness. That's, that's my goal. That's my whole focus. My assessment is that the alternate views of the coming age or alternate views even of this age fall far short of giving the Christian life meaning and certainly fall short of giving the Christian accurate anticipation that the Scripture calls us to have. And so to keep tonight as applicational as possible, I want to offer a positive argument for three ways to have a mindset of joyful future expectation. Three ways to have a mindset of joyful future expectation. But I want to show you that each of these three is not accomplished by alternative theologies of the millennium. So the first way to have a mindset of joyful future expectation, anticipate a fully redeemed world. Anticipate a fully redeemed world. We've already read together Peter's observation in 2 Peter 3.14 that we are looking for these things. Now, our faith deals with our personal eschatology. Our personal eschatology is what happens when we die. I actually have a file box in my house with our will and insurance policies and so forth in it, which I've labeled personal eschatology. What happens to me? But our faith also deals with the natural question of what happens when the world dies. What happens at the end of this age? This is our natural longing. We long to understand this. Titus 2.13 tells us that we ought to be looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Scripture tells us to expect great things, to expect mighty things in the future. Paul gives this promise in 2 Corinthians 4.17 and 18 when he says, with delight for our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Great things, mighty things to look forward to. In Romans 8, 18-25, Paul gives tremendous hope, tremendous expectation. Things like the fact that the glory yet to be revealed makes current suffering not even worth mentioning. That when the resurrected saints are brought to the earth, the creation itself will be freed from the corruption that it's now currently suffering. That the current groaning of creation and of our own groaning in our dying bodies will be relieved at our official adoption, the redemption of our body. Romans 8.23 And that we are to eagerly wait for these things. There is a, a sense of expectancy we're to have. 
Paul describes the coming of Christ in First Peter, or Peter rather, in First Peter one thirteen, as the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That you think you've had grace now when Jesus appears and we see Him as He is. Oh, how much more grace do we receive? John gives the glorious hope in 1 John 3, 2 that you will see Christ just as He is. That is an incredible promise. And in fact, this expectation has a spiritually purifying effect. John goes on to say, and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. What does that mean? It means that you know that you're going to see Christ just as he is and you're spiritually, you're getting yourself ready. You're, you're checking yourself. You're, you're preparing. You're purifying because you don't want to appear before God uh, dirty. And I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about you just want to be ready. You want to be smiling. You want to be pure before him. That's natural for us. And so we're anticipating a fully redeemed world where everything comes back to the way it ought to be. Everything does. But there is an alternative view of the end times which does not assist you in anticipating a fully redeemed world. And in my very first millennium message, I said we weren't going to mess with this anymore. Changed my mind. We're going to do it one more time because it's making a comeback. And that is the view called preterism. Preterism. Preterism comes from a Latin word which means something that is beyond, something that is past, something that's happened already. Full preterism teaches that all biblical prophecy has been fulfilled. Christ has returned. The judgment of Satan and Antichrist has already happened. The resurrection of the dead has happened. The kingdom of God is totally active on earth today. Everything happened at the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. The Great Commission has been totally fulfilled. We are in the new heavens and the new earth. The world will continue forever as it is now. Preterism fails to anticipate a fully redeemed world. Now, at first glance, you probably find full preterism odd and illogical just based on your observation of the world. And you're wondering, why would we even bother with this? Well, there's two reasons. First of all, preterism is making an aggressive comeback. And even on social media, preterists are complaining that they can't find a church to worship in. You know why they can't? Because they don't believe orthodoxy. And there's nobody who can even understand where they're coming from. But the second reason is that preterism is in its own category. It does serious damage to the biblical gospel. We would consider it a heretical position. It's not just an alternative view. It is heretical. It, it denies that Christ will return physically and bodily, that, that he's already here invisibly through the church. Preterism relies heavily on a few passages of Scripture, about five to be precise. This isn't all of them, but here's an accurate representation, all from Matthew's Gospel, ironically. Matthew 10, 23, But whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Preterists take that to mean that the apostles didn't even get to finish their ministry before Christ returned. Matthew 16, 28, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Again, 
that they will see the full kingdom coming. By the way, that is right before a pretty key event where, where uh, Peter, James, and John saw the transfiguration of Jesus. They saw what the coming of the Son of Man will look like. Matthew 24, 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So those are the few key verses that they would hang this belief on. And just very briefly, let me categorize why preterism is completely inconsistent with the Scripture. I'll give you six reasons and then we'll move on. The first reason I'll call the redemptive history reason. The redemptive history reason. Preterism leaves humanity and the earth in its fallen state forever. That's a major problem. Redemptive history of the Bible is all about complete restoration. A a new heavens and new earth after the old have been melted down. We read that this evening. A restoration of all things. Acts 3.21 The physical and visible resurrection of the just in conjunction with the restoration of the created order to its Eden-like state. Romans 8. So the redemptive history reason would be highly against preterism. It's the second reason it's inconsistent, the redemptive prophecy reason. The redemptive prophecy reason is, is the fact that we, we do live in the beginning of the messianic age. Christ has come for the first time. The church has been born as followers of the known Messiah. But Bible prophecy is very clear that we await a second coming of Christ to bring the culmination of prophecy. Preterism fails to recognize the Bible prophecy concerning Messiah has a now and later aspect to it. The kingdom of God has begun its early stage of gathering citizens, but the kingdom hasn't come now and later. Eternal life belongs to you as Christians now. Resurrection comes later. We are new creations in Christ now, but the culmination of the total transformation of of you as a human being, your resurrected body and so forth, that happens later. In fact, written 15 years or so after the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Once again, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. Hasn't happened yet. There's a third reason, the return of Christ reason. The return of Christ reason. The return of Christ will be personal, physical, and visible. I don't think Scripture could be any clearer about this. I know Scripture couldn't be any clearer. Matthew twenty four thirty: The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Somehow, a worldwide visible return of Christ. Acts nine, Acts one nine through eleven: The apostles had just witnessed the physical ascension of Christ into heaven. And they're told by the angels in attendance that Jesus would return how? The same way you saw him go. Keyword, saw him go. Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. That doesn't sound very invisible to me. Here's another reason, the revelation of Jesus Christ reason. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I'm speaking of the book. The book of Revelation. This is believed by preterists to be completely fulfilled. There's a couple of problems with that. First of all, that means that Revelation chapter 20 must fit a thousand years into a couple of decades. It also means that the book of Revelation must be written prior to A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. Otherwise, it's sort of a a Johnny-come-lately book that doesn't make any sense because it was written too late. 
the unanimous testimony of the early church was that the book of Revelation was written in the mid-90s. No one in the early church believed that Re- Revelation was written in the, in, before AD 70. You want to know why? Because it hadn't been written yet. They didn't even know to believe when it was going to be written because it hadn't been written. We could call this one the review of proof texts reason. The review of proof texts. And while I am tempted to go back to those three or four verses I cited and to tear apart their argument, I'm not going to spend time doing that. But I will say this. Every one of those verses have much more information and context that allows for a broader understanding than just the inflexible meaning of this means everything happens in A.D. 70. And also, you, you can't just isolate the near and the soon passages which speak of Jesus' return. You can't just isolate those from the many delay passages, the long time from now passages. Jesus told parables in Matthew 25 and Luke 19, Luke 20, specifically meant to correct any notion that Christ might return anytime soon. They're all parables about waiting for a very, very long time. One more reason that the preterist view doesn't fit biblically, I'll call this one the reality of the church reason. The reality of the church reason. After the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the churches of the world, listen carefully, all believed that the return of Christ, the bodily resurrection, and the coming judgment were still future. That was a 100% belief of the entire church. Preterists believed that the apostles believed prophecy was fulfilled in A.D. 70, that that's what the apostles believed. If the apostles were such great teachers, why could they not convince one church to believe what they supposedly said? They weren't very effective teachers if they couldn't convince one person of their viewpoint. Church history doesn't prove theology, but when 100% of the church believes something, generally they've got it. Instead, you want joyful expectation? Saying to yourself, I'm going to be a preterist. This is as good as it's going to get. That doesn't give you any joy whatsoever. Preterists are not happy people because this is as good as it gets. Instead, anticipate a fully redeemed world. It's the second way to have a mindset of joyful future anticipation. This may seem obvious to us, but it's something we should go back to. Rely on Scripture alone. Rely on Scripture alone. I'm amazed at how many different sources people use to try to understand the end times. But we must rely on Scripture alone because if we look to any other source for understanding the end times, it it will deceive us. Those sources will be wrong. They will lead us down a path that's, that's incoherent. Particularly in the area of being tempted to think that maybe mankind is getting better and that the world is improving. And believe it or not, that is a belief system that continues to grow. But Paul says in Romans 12, 12, that we are to be rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction. Peter gives the great hope in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 6, that we've been born again by the choice of God, by the power of God, and that we've been, we have waiting for us an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, and we're protected by the power of God for the finishing of our salvation, the, the culmination of redemptive history, our own resurrections. And Peter says we're to greatly rejoice, and here's the key, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
That is not a belief system that says that the world will get better, just hang in there. The writer of Hebrews reminds us as the local church in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 that we are to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What does that mean? Speaking of the day of Christ's return, the day of judgment that's coming to the world, he's saying that every day that passes, the world's going to get crazier and you need to meet together all the more. We need the church together. This is a hope in the coming of Christ, not in believing that the world will improve, not believing that if the election would only go a certain way, things would get better. Not looking at current events and hoping they're leading in the right direction. Not looking at world events and trying to foist them upon the Bible and make it mean something. But the alternate view of the end times, which does not assist you in relying on Scripture alone, is called post-millennialism. Post-millennialism falls far short spiritually in being a genuine help. Post-millennialism refers to the belief that Christ returns after, post, the thousand years of Revelation 20. This belief system was proposed first by the Unitarian Daniel Whidbey in the 17th century, and it was specifically given as an alternative to amillennialism. But post-millennialism speculates that uh, several things, that the millennium, whether you view that as literal thousand years or figurative for a long age, that the millennium consists of a time in which Christianity has finally overcome the unbelieving world. This is a time, as one theologian says, of mass spiritual expansion of God's kingdom. Biblical values will dominate and most, if not all, people will be saved. Now let me stop right here for a minute. That already sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It's very attractive and it's very optimistic. Richard Mayhew explains this, that according to post-millennialism, quote, Christ now rules over this golden age of undetermined length from heaven and will return to earth at the end. The church is considered to be spiritual Israel, having inherited the promises made to Abraham and David. Therefore, there will be no future for a national Israel with any biblical significance. That at one point, Jesus will deem the earth ready for his return. He'll raise all the dead at one time and the eternal state will then commence. The millennium, the millennial kingdom will be brought about by the hard work of mankind, the evangelistic work of the church. And while that sounds high and lofty, in reality, post-millennialism finds its expression very differently. It finds its expression in attempts to change laws, policies, and efforts to force a Christianization of society. They would also say that Satan's influence will be constrained more and more and more over time, but there won't ever be a total inactivity of Satan. It'll just grow uh, less and less. One scholar says this, the present age gradually emerges into the millennium in such a way that is difficult, if not impossible, to discern the exact starting point of the millennium. So, in other words, if you're post-millennial, you believe that at some point Christ is reigning on earth from heaven... Uh, somehow or another, but we don't really know when that starts. And they have to give an explanation for what it means to reign with Christ because Revelation 20 is very clear about that. And they say that reigning with Christ means you're suffering for Him. That's reigning with Him. You're suffering for Him and you're living your personal life for Him as well. 
Now, I'm not going to spend any more time on post-millennialism throughout our series. Of course, I said that about uh, preterism as well, but I'm going to take a little time right now to respond to this belief system, and, and I'm doing this because post-millennialism is making a massive comeback right now. And so I want you to be prepared. Let me give you some obstacles to the post-millennial system. Obstacle number one, post-millennialism is very new to the scene theologically. When a doctrine appears for the first time 1,500 years after the completion of the Bible, you should be suspicious. Obstacle number two, Satan's power as being limited but not inactive is a very weak position. It's a very weak position. The picture of Revelation 21 through 3 of Satan's limitation is this. An angel wrapping a chain around Satan, casting him into the abyss, sealing it. And by the way, notice the abyss is the same place that's such a power-draining and terrible place that demons beg Jesus in Luke chapter 8 not to send them there. So Satan's power is being limited but not inactive. That's a very weak position. Obstacle number three, the conception of Christians reigning by suffering is nonsense. And I don't mean that to be insulting. I mean that it's a, it's a paradox that makes no sense whatsoever. Suffering for Christ is the opposite of what it means to reign. When you reign, you have authority. You rule. Revelation 24 through 6 clearly teaches that resurrected believers rule with Christ, not suffer for Him and live for Him merely in daily life. There's a fourth obstacle. I'm going to camp on this one for a little bit. The fourth, fourth obstacle is that Scripture never presents the kingdoms of the world as improving over time. It never presents the kingdoms of the world as improving over time, getting better over time. It's actually quite the opposite. Daniel 2, 44 and 45 says that the kingdoms of the world will continue in their evil until Christ's kingdom crushes them. And the kingdom of Christ is pictured as a huge stone coming down out of heaven and just whammo. It's not, well, we'll get better over time. Yeah, they'll get better as soon as they're dead. That's when they get better. Matthew 13, 24 through 30, Jesus explains that the tares will continue to grow with the wheat, the false and the true believers together until the very end when the tares are harvested and burned in the fire. In other words, lawlessness only ceases when the lawless are gone. Jesus taught in Matthew 24 that the time prior to the return of Christ will be an agonizing tribulation. That it gets worse. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that in the last days, difficult times will come. And then Paul gives a 12-verse litany of how terrible the world will be. Verse 13 says, Evil men will proceed, listen carefully, from bad to worse. Not will get better every day in every way. 2 Timothy 4 predicts that the world is headed toward less and less acceptance of the truth, that the world will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside the myths. 1 Timothy 4.1 says that people more and more will turn to doctrines of demons. One more obstacle. Postmillennialism was born historically, not scripturally. Postmillennialism was born historically, not scripturally. The end of the Renaissance brought about a, a general agreement that humanity was improving in many ways through human efforts. And you have to understand, the end of the Renaissance, the improvements we're talking about is, uh, w- would be things like discovering that dumping all of the waste from your house out in the street probably isn't very sanitary and helpful. 
So these are the sorts of major improvements. Like that washing your hands actually might be helpful to you once in a while. The bathing more than once in the spring is good for you. So humanity is beginning to make these discoveries. During the 18th century, Great Awakening in America, post-millennialism grew tremendously. Uh, the, the colonies, the American colonies gave hope that a new world was emerging with religious freedom. And one of my heroes of the faith, unfortunately, uh, was, he's not now, but he was a famous post-millennialist, Jonathan Edwards. He's totally pre-millennial now, but when he was on this earth, he was post-millennial. In the mid-1800s to the early 1900s, post-millennialism enjoyed tremendous popularity. The, the rapid increase in technology led Christians to believe that the world was indeed getting better. The increase in missionary work was, was exponential. Missionaries were going all over the world. The gospel was being furthered at an unprecedented rate. But there was an undercurrent. At the very same time all of that was happening, there was a battle for the very nature of the Bible itself. Theological liberals were calling into question the sufficiency, the inerrancy, and the authority of Scripture. And this huge rise in the belief in Darwinism was plowing a furrow of blood and destruction through the churches of the world. But despite this, sermons around the world abounded on the glowing reports of Christian triumphs and universal brotherhood and how influential the church was becoming in world events a Presbyterian minister so taken with all the positives he saw in the world wrote a hymn to celebrate that the church was rising up. It's called, Rise Up, O Men of God. But post-millennialism nearly died because of one event that no sane human could ignore and which completely disproved any idea that the world was on its way to a divinely Christian society, and that was World War I. World War I was fought in Europe, the Middle East, Africa, the Pacific, parts of Asia by 30 countries with a death toll of over 20 million, half of those civilian casualties. Given the fact that the total world population at the time was 1.7 billion people, that means in today's world that's the equivalent of nearly 100 million people dying in that war. After World War I, post-millennialism was silent. And even many liberals were turning back to the Bible. Their denial of the authority of Scripture fell short. It didn't answer any questions for them. It didn't give them any answers in light of the greatest conflict the world had ever known. Sadly, post-millennialism is surging once again, both as a theological system and as the dangerous outworking of Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is the belief that Christianity will take over the government and the political systems and will... Christianize the world. In our most recent presidential election, there were political rallies even featuring people getting baptized to join with the party that was apparently going to take America back to the Lord. That you would go to a, a political rally and if you believed in this candidate, then you got baptized because we're going to Christianize this nation. That movement is growing daily. That we're going to try to become a Christian nation once again, which is a misnomer. We've never been a Christian nation. There's never been such thing as a Christian nation. That won't happen until Christ returns. There's never been a theocracy on this earth except Israel. God instituted human government in Genesis 9 for the very reason that there are no theocracies. There are no governments run by God until Christ returns and puts what on his shoulders? The government. 
Christian nationalism, the outworking of post-millennial theology, has perverted the gospel of Christ. It's turned faith into a political movement instead of an offer of redemption from sin given to individuals who repent. So don't believe the lies. Postmillennialism is making a surge once again. Instead, instead of relying on history, instead of relying on observation of events, instead of relying on, on impatience that I'm just tired of living in a nation that doesn't respect the Lord, we rely on Scripture alone. You know what the Scriptures say? That every eye will behold Him when He returns. That's what we look to. Scripture alone tells you what's coming. That's the only way to have a true and eager anticipation. Let me give you one more way to have a mindset of joyful future anticipation. Trust in God's faithful integrity. Trust in God's faithful integrity. He's a God who does what He says He's going to do. He always does. Romans 11.26 The Apostle Paul makes this declaration. All Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Why? Verse 29, he says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That when God makes an unconditional promise, He means it. And yes, Israel today is apostate. As a nation, her eyes are blinded to her King and to her Messiah. The one that they crucified, they have never nationally repented for this. So it's it's very tempting to craft an explanation. It's tempting to to put together an explanation of how is it that all Israel will be saved when there's no Messiah worshiping Israel today? How is that possible? What's Paul's answer? I'll give you the short version and I'll give you his version. The short version is don't think you know everything. His version is Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be repaid to Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. If you try to come up with an alternate explanation as to why there is no current saved nation of Israel... And if we try to make the church supreme and dominant or try to force the church to be the new Israel. Just calling a spade a spade here. In reality, what we're doing is calling into question the integrity of God. It doesn't do any favors for how much we trust our God to keep His promises. It doesn't increase our faith in Him. Joyful expectation comes when you trust in God's faithful integrity. And the system which falls short of this basic premise is amillennialism. Amillennialism refers to the view that Jesus will not reign physically and visibly on the earth prior to the final state, the eternal state of the new heavens and new earth. Its basic general character is the denial of a literal reign of Christ on the earth. The prefix ah negates the fact. So amillennialism means no millennium. There's some basic features of amillennialism. The rule of Christ on earth as described in Revelation 20 is spiritual in nature. That the reign of Christ began at the first advent and it will end at the second advent and the thousand years of Revelation 20 verse 5 is symbolic in nature. It just means the time we're living in now. 
Another basic feature is that Satan is currently bound. His power is limited, very similar to the post-millennial view. Another feature, the first resurrection of the dead mentioned in Revelation 20 is symbolic. It's spiritual. It refers to the inward salvation of the believers. The second resurrection in Revelation 20 is actual and real and physical. They would also say that many, if not all, of the promises to Israel are either fulfilled already, being fulfilled in the church, or fulfilled in Christ. And there's lots of different variations to that. That Israel nationally forfeited God's unconditional promises to Abraham and David because of continued disobedience. And that all the end times events, uh, the rapture, depending on what view they take, General resurrection, judgment, the inaugurating of the new heavens and the new earth, it all happens in quick succession when Christ returns. It's just boom, 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 and it's all done. Now, unlike postmillennialism, we would agree with our amillennial brothers that the affairs of the earth deteriorate until the coming of Christ to intervene. We would agree with them on that. One theologian says this, according to the amillennial view, The conflict between good and evil will intensify toward the end of the present age and the increasing persecution will culminate in the appearance of the Antichrist and the second coming of Christ. And at the return of Christ, there will be one mass general resurrection, the judgment of both believers and unbelievers from all ages. Believers enter into the new heavens and new earth and unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire. A little side note here. Among amillennialists, historically, there's been a division as to whether the kingdom prophecies are happening now on earth or happening spiritually in heaven with all the saints that are there. From my reading, my general assessment is that amillennialism today overwhelmingly focuses on the kingdom being on earth today, fulfilled now. Now, I want to be as fair as I can. I believe that most, and I think it's safe to say all of our brothers and sisters in the amillennial camp have some version of saying that they do in fact affirm the integrity of God. They, they affirm the integrity of God. They've had to change what the Old Testament says about its promises in order to affirm the integrity of God. They would say that God has been faithful to keep his promises to Israel and it's been through the church or through Christ. But the basic issue is that what God originally meant for Abraham when he promised him a physical land, and what God originally meant for David when he promised him a descendant reigning over Israel, that those promises have fundamentally changed because Israel rejected Christ when he was on earth. I'm not going to spend a lot of time refuting the methods and approach of amillennialism. We'll do that in the coming weeks. But I do want to point out a paradox, an irony of sort. Once in a while you come across something that you know will never be said better and so it's better just to read it. In 2007, at Shepherd's Conference, John MacArthur delivered a keynote message that sent ripples throughout the Reformed world. His message was titled, I almost can't say this without laughing, Why Every Self-Respecting Calvinist Must Be a Premillennialist. And this is preaching to thousands of pastors from all theological walks of life. And he opened with this loving and gentle but direct statement concerning amillennialism, and it is worth a listen. He said this, It is one of those strange ironies in the church and Reformed theology that those who love the doctrine of sovereign election most supremely and sincerely 
and who are most unwavering in their devotion to the glory of God, the honor of Christ, the work of the Spirit in regeneration and sanctification, the veracity and inerrancy of Scripture, who are most fastidious in hermeneutics and who are the most careful and intentionally biblical regarding categories of doctrine and who see themselves as guardians of biblical truth and are not content to be wrong at all, and who agree most heartily on the essential matters of Christian truth so that they labor with all their powers to examine in a Berean fashion every relevant text to discern the true interpretation of all matters of divine revelation. That's a long sentence going back to the beginning. It's one of the strange ironies that those people are in varying degrees of non-interest. They're disinterested in applying those same passions and skills to the end of the story. And they're rather content to be in a happy and even playful disagreement regarding the vast biblical data on eschatology as if the end didn't matter much. And in his characteristic direct style, he continues to sum up that the issue at stake is the integrity of God. He goes on, But it does matter that Calvinists care about eschatology and get it right. And we will if we get Israel right. We get Israel right when we get the Old Testament covenants and promises right. We get the Old, covenant, Old Testament covenants and promises right when we get the interpretation of Scripture right. We get the interpretation of Scripture right when we're faithful to a legitimate hermeneutic and God's integrity is upheld. It is an issue of the integrity of God. We get our hermeneutics right, we'll get the Old Testament promises right. Get the promises right, we'll get Israel right. Get Israel right we'll get eschatology right. I cannot emphasize this enough. Our discussion of the views of the end times is not merely an academic or ivory tower discussion. This is not something that is just peripheral. This is important. I told you the last time that great saints of the past, such as Irenaeus, used premillennialism to defend against some of the worst heresies in the early centuries of the church. The end times and how you view them, affects how you think when you see world events. It affects how you think when you read the news and see your government betraying you every single day. When you see the obvious degradation of our society with every generation, it matters. Alternatives to premillennialism have fallen short in giving you spiritual comfort, giving you spiritual joy that every Christian yearns for and needs. So if you want to joyfully anticipate the future... I want to. I believe you want to. How do you do that? Anticipate a fully redeemed world. Rely on Scripture alone. And trust in God's faithful integrity. Our Father, we come to you now. And we've said this often here. We're prayerful that perhaps this was our last Lord's Day on this earth. You've given us this gift of bringing us together on this Lord's Day, but perhaps next time we gather, the preacher will be one with a face that shines like the sun and hair as white as snow and a golden sash and whose voice is like the sound of many waters. But until that day, I pray, Lord, that as our dear brother Peter said, that we would consider how we ought to be in holy conduct and in godliness. 
that the fact of the coming day of the Lord would inspire us, Lord, to be diligent, to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. I pray, Lord, that You would equip us to be very accurate and precise in our understanding of what Scripture says about what is to come, not to win an argument, but so that our, our own hearts may be thrilled with truth. We, we can't be thrilled by that which is not true. And so we would look to be excited by and energized by and inspired by that which is true. And that is that the Lord Jesus Christ will return. He will take us home first and seven years later He will come to take back what is rightfully His. And with the blood of the nations He's about to conquer spattered on His robe, He'll take back this earth and set up a kingdom that is truly glorious and marvelous to behold. May we be faithful to be found in that kingdom. And we pray for His glory and for His sake. Amen.